Over the last five years or so, our group has published 15 papers on different topics. Now, what did we come up with? We found out that there are certain foods that make diabetes better like nothing else. Vegetables and fruits, whole grains, legumes, that's your beans and lentils and peas. So these are the foods that people should consume the most of. But there are also foods people need to be really careful about. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in El Paso, Texas, Renton, Washington, and Kharkiv, Ukraine. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 41 of season 6, number 437 overall. Consume minimally processed plant foods and minimize consumption of red and processed meat to manage diabetes. That is the advice from the Diabetes and Nutrition Study Group of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, and they are out with new dietary recommendations that cover all of Europe. And this group says that very low-carb diets, such as keto, they are not recommended due to safety concerns. And one of the experts from that esteemed panel is here with us today, Dr. Hanna Kaliova. And our conversation is twofold. Number one, we will be getting into the evidence for the best diet for diabetes. And number two, how to weigh whether the science that you're hearing about whether it's on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or from a friend, how you can determine whether that is actually credible. Is it bull or is it the best? Well, Dr. Kaliova will tell you. And along the credibility lines, an interesting point of our conversation is when I actually push her on credibility. How can people actually trust even what she is saying is credible? There are so many talking heads out there. And so if you really want to get to the thick of it, into the thick of it, how you can determine whether or not somebody actually knows what they're talking about and it's not just random Joe's diabetes blog, Dr. K will be able to fill you in. But I'll tell you, one of the biggest takeaways from their recommendations, in my opinion, is about fiber. We really need to bulk up on the amount of fiber that we are eating. And let me share this with you now from a press release that was sent to me about these recommendations. It says, increasing intake of fiber, which is found in plant foods but not animal products, can improve blood glucose, cholesterol, and body weight thus improving diabetes management. That is according to those recommendations, which also say that people with diabetes should consume at least, at the very least, 35 grams of fiber every single day. 
Now, diabetes or not, most of us here in the US are only eating 10 to 15 grams of fiber per day, well short of the 35 grams that are being recommended. In fact, in fact, only 5% of adults right now in the US are getting the recommended amount of fiber on any given day. So plenty of room for improvement there. But before we get into our conversation with Dr. Kaliova, I wanted to remind you about the big exam room live and in person coming up July 12th in New York City. And I am so thrilled that Mr. Plant Strong, Mr. Engine 2, Rip Esselstyn will be joining us that night. He's going to be there along with myself and Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Robert Osfeld, all going to be there together on stage, putting on the most heart healthy night of your life. You know, heart disease continues to be the leading cause of death in the United States. It is also the most preventable. So come on and hang out with us. Have a great time on July 12th in New York. And I promise you, we are going to give you all of the information that you need to take your heart health to that next level. And oh, by the way, we're going to feed you and we're going to have a whole heck of a lot of fun along the way as well. PCRM.org slash events to secure your tickets or just click that link right now in the episode notes. But it is time right now to get into the topic of the day, and that is diabetes. What are the best diets for diabetes and what are the worst diets for diabetes? And oh, that information that we get hit with, bombarded from every angle. How do we know what to trust? Here now, a great conversation with Dr. Hanna Kaliova. Dr. K, thanks for being back on the program. Thanks for having me, Chuck. I'm I'm so excited to be here today. Let's number one talk about these guidelines. Um, this is actually really big time stuff that you're doing uh, over in Europe. Let's talk about these guidelines and what it was that you you settled with here. I know that you've uh, presented some slides, and we're going to get into some credibility, but just. Before we get into the nitty gritty of everything, basically speaking, if a person is really looking to take control of their insulin sensitivity, bring their blood sugar under control, what is the healthiest diet that they should be turning to? That's an important question, Chuck. Uh, and uh, we know from, um, you know, we've covered this topic uh, a few times already. Uh, and we know that for people with diabetes, relying on whole grains and legumes and fruits and vegetables, um, is the best strategy to tackle their diabetes. Uh, now, many people find it confusing because these foods also happen to be high in carbohydrate and they've been educated to watch their carbohydrates. Uh, so it seems like something that goes against the, uh, you know, the mainstream. Uh, but I need to tell you uh, this recommendation has actually become the mainstream. And uh, not only uh, like in the media, but also in the in the expert panel that I'm a part of, um, we put out some official recommendations that put these foods in the center of the, of the plate. Now, let's get into this because what you're saying here, uh, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it, but we're going to show why also 
these recommendations now are becoming more and more widespread, more and more accepted in the mainstream, and in fact are the mainstream here. So I understand that you have put together some slides uh, for us to view. If you're watching this right now on YouTube or on Facebook, cool, you're going to see some really fantastic stuff. If you're listening to this podcast, don't worry, I've dropped a link to the interview for you in the show description. Nonetheless, you're about to learn a whole heap. So Dr. Kaliova, with that, I'm going to turn things over to you, set the stage for you to raise our health IQs with these recommendations and credibility. Let's get into it all. Evidence-based nutrition recommendations for diabetes. Why is it important? Why is it important to look for evidence? Um, well, many people, when they're diagnosed with diabetes or their loved ones are diagnosed with diabetes, they're like, "Let me ask the expert," uh, which is a good start. But at the same time, it has its own challenges because it raises the question. Who's the expert? <laughs> like, is it someone who has a PhD or is it a professor at a certain university? How do you define the expert? Is it someone who spent the last 30 years, um, you know, treating patients and recommending a specific way of, of treatment? Uh, so we see that each one of us has a certain way and has certain blind spots also. So let's say uh, someone is keen on, a, on recommending people a keto diet. Uh, they may have a PhD, they may be a professor at a university, uh, but how do we balance that approach with other approaches that are out there? How do we, as a person who doesn't know much about diabetes and nutrition, uh, go into this jungle and make sense of all the recommendations that are out there by the experts. And that's exactly why we got together as the expert panel of the Diabetes and Nutrition Study Group of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, which is an international group of experts. And we just published the evidence-based European recommendations for the dietary management of diabetes. Now, these recommendations have been published in the journal Diabetologia, uh, which is one of the leading journals in diabetes care. And it's the official journal of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. Uh, this will actually be the cover of the June issue of Diabetologia. So uh, the, the summary of the recommendations are here. Now, the the expert opinion is considered a low quality um, piece of information. While it may be helpful in the beginning if you've been diagnosed with diabetes or if you have someone in your family uh, to look, look up what's available out there, you need a higher level of evidence, especially when it comes to official recommendations. Uh, when we look at personal experience let's let's see let's uh, let's say you hear from someone who had diabetes and who tried a plant-based diet and completely reversed their diabetes that that would be considered a higher level of evidence uh, especially if you meet 10 people like that and they all have a positive experience with that diet uh, then we have cohort studies or observational studies where 
for example, you uh, let people fill out their questionnaire on what they're eating, how their diet looks like, and then you check in with them two years later and you look at their risk of developing diabetes uh, for the next 10 years, let's say. Uh, that would be an observational study. You, you're not intending to change their diet at all. You're just observing. You're looking at does what they eat have any effect on their risk of developing diabetes? The challenge with these observational studies is that there may be other factors that play a role. Uh, let's say someone eats a lot of fruits and vegetables, but they also um, have a higher education, they, are, um, they have a higher socioeconomic status, um, and they don't smoke, they're more physically active. How do you exactly filter out all these other factors that play a role? That's why observational studies are considered lower evidence than randomized controlled trials. Uh, randomized controlled trials uh, take, let's say, people with diabetes, and they, they randomly assign them to different treatments. Uh, let's say one group will follow a low-fat vegan diet, and the other group will follow a portion-controlled diet that still counts carbohydrates. These are This is head-to-head -head comparison of two different approaches, and... Uh, the randomized controlled trials just provide a higher level of evidence for the for the official recommendations. And that's the type of trials that we've, we've been conducting as uh, at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Now, there are multiple randomized clinical trials that have been conducted on diet and diabetes. So the next step is to go through all the papers that have been published on that topic and conduct systematic reviews and meta-analyses and just uh, synthesize and collect all the evidence and bring it all together so that it makes sense to lay people. So this is the process of updating the guideline, the, gui the nutrition guidelines for people with diabetes. It took us a few years. Uh, as an expert panel, uh, we started this process by asking important questions. What do people need to know? They need to know uh, what sources of carbohydrate and protein and fat are best for them. They also need to know which foods are best for them. And they also need to know uh, which diets are best for them in terms of diabetes. So over um, more than, it took us more than five years to study all the papers, collect the evidence, grade the evidence using an objective tool that's called the grade, uh, and assess whether the evidence is high or low for, for each of the outcomes, uh, and then publish um, multiple papers, and then collect the evidence in one uh, recommendation paper. Now, the evidence using the grade system uh, ranges between high and very low based on our confidence, um, whether it's a true effect that lies close to that of the estimate of the effect. Now, randomized clinical trials start as high with the evidence and observational studies start as low. And there can be 
upgrades or downgrades based on the quality of the study. So let's say we have a randomized clinical trial that has shown a beneficial effects of a plant-based diet. That starts with a high certainty of evidence, but we also need to assess the risk of bias, the inconsistency, the indirectness and imprecision and publication bias. Uh, so the grade can be uh, upgraded or downgraded. So the level of evidence may be high or may be downgraded uh, to moderate or even low or very low. Now, uh, over the last five years or so, our group has published 15 papers on different topics that you can look up and you can look for more detail. And we synthesized all the available evidence and we published in we published it in one single paper. Now, what did we come up with? We, we found out that there are certain foods that make diabetes better like nothing else. Which are the foods? Well, these foods include vegetables and fruits, whole grains, legumes, that's your beans and lentils and peas, and it's also nuts and seeds in moderate amount with uh, vegetable oils as sources of healthy fats. So these are the foods that people should consume the most of. But there are also foods people need to be really careful about and they should try to minimize them. And these include red and processed meat, the sodas, sources of sodium or high sodium foods such as cheese, for example, and refined grains. Uh, now, these are just simple, uh, simple guidelines that people can live by. Now, what is special about these dietary recommendations and why are they important? Number one is the comprehensive approach. We didn't cut the corners. We didn't reel high on expert opinions. We didn't ask the fat uh, expert to write a paper and recommendations on what people should eat in terms of fat, uh, but we did all the work. We researched all the literature that has been published on, on all the topics and published independent papers be before synthesizing them into one paper. That's number one. Number two, these dietary recommendations are official. They come from an official expert panel uh, of the Diabetes and Nutrition Study Group of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. Now, uh, if you're watching in the United States, you may be like, okay, well, that's for Europe, but what about the United States? What about the American Diabetes Association? Well, I've got some news for you. Uh, the European Association for the Study of Diabetes and the American Diabetes Association also meet on a regular basis and they publish joint uh, recommendations for people with diabetes um, time to time. So next time they meet, uh, it's likely that they will also update uh, the joint recommendations. Uh, and number three, why these dietary recommendations are so important is that they put 
all the plant-based foods in the center of the plate. Uh, they emphasize all the vegan foods that are that make diabetes much better and can actually reverse or even prevent diabetes. So eat your plants is the message from the official dietary recommendations for people with diabetes. And with that, I bet you have many, many questions for me, Chuck. Oh, I've got one or two, Dr. Kaliova. Uh, very interesting, very interesting stuff. Um, before we get to the credibility portion, which very, very well done as far as how you weighted the particular research that was considered. Number one, um, the recommendations that you drew up here, um, even though we're waiting to see what movement will happen here in the U.S., how do they differ from the current U.S. dietary guidelines for somebody, uh, somebody with diabetes? The current recommendations for people with diabetes emphasize the energy restriction. Restriction That means someone who has been diagnosed with diabetes, they need to count their calories. They also need to watch their carbohydrates. That's the standard recommendation. And they state that a plant-based diet is possible, uh, but it's more uh, like on the side, uh, you know, like it's not in the center of the recommendation. Uh, now, this particular paper puts all the healthy plant foods in the center of the recommendations. Uh, and uh, that means that a vegan diet is just like, like uh, the superfood or the super diet for people with diabetes. And going to these recommendations as well, you were talking about the American Diabetes Association. One of the things that I know we grapple with here in the States is the impact that industry influence can have on dietary guidelines. In Europe, is there that same concern? Is it really easy for, say, uh, you know, the beef council to get in whatever the equivalent would be in Europe to get in there, throw a whole lot of money behind uh, really the policy makers, the policy shapers, the same way that they are able to do here in the States? Uh, you're raising an important question, Chuck. Uh, and the industry funding seems to be omnipresent in the United States. And I need to say, and I'm really proud to be a part of this expert panel group because there has been no industry funding uh, involved in, in the dietary recommendation process uh, over the last few years. So that makes me really proud to be a member of, a, of such an independent group of, of experts uh, who cannot you know, compromise uh, their science based on any industry funding. And kind of with that in mind, what is the prevalence of diabetes in Europe compared to what we have right now in the States? Uh, the issues are kind of similar. Uh, like the main objections of people, of clinicians, uh, you know, who would like to see their patients improve their diabetes. The objections usually include, well, a vegan diet, will people do it? Like it's such a major change to the to the current diet that they're consuming. We're concerned that people will just not do it. Uh, and the answer is, uh, well, um, maybe each patient with diabetes should have the options. They should know, okay, this train 
will take me to my destination in two hours. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of slow and uh, the price is low. Uh, that means not many dietary changes are needed. Uh, hopefully it'll get me to my destination. But if, if it does, it'll be, it'll be really slow. And who knows if I'll get there. There, there's another option that brings you to the destination real fast, but the price is also um, higher, such as when you take a fast train. I was recently in Japan and I love the Shinkansen. The Shinkansen is the bullet train uh, that that can go like 250 miles an hour. <laughs> and it's amazing. It takes you to your destination the trip that would usually take you two hours may take you only half an hour. But the price tag is also much higher. So you need to do the decision and make the decision yourself uh, based on your values. Uh, I always like the speed. If I can, you know, if I can gain uh, some, some advantage of getting somewhere faster, I consider it a major advantage. So if a vegan diet can improve your diabetes much faster and much more effectively, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to make the dietary changes? Uh, and that's a, that's a question that each, each person needs to answer for themselves individually. I hope to make it to Japan someday myself. Uh, that's really awesome that you were just there. Um, so when we're talking about making these changes and laying out the guidelines and people then weighing for themselves, you know, what route they want to take, how big of a reach are, are you expecting these particular recommendations to have? I mean, historically speaking, what has the reach been for the Diabetes and Nutrition Study Group and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes? Are they like the gold standard when it comes to nutrition for people with diabetes? That's exactly right, Chuck. They're the gold standard uh, and the official guidelines um, that, that, that were lastly published in 2004. So it's been a while, you know, it took us a while to update them. Uh, they've been cited by so many, so many papers and so many healthcare professionals. Uh, whenever healthcare professionals want to look up the official recommendations, uh, these guidelines come up as, as one of the first documents. So uh, they're the mainstream, um, they're influencing the healthcare professionals and also the lay audience, whoever wants, whoever wants to learn more and uh, in more detail. What would the equivalent be of an organization here in the States? You mentioned the American Diabetes Association. Uh, would that be about the equivalent here? Or are we talking a like yes. full-blown FDA kind of deal? Uh, we're talking about the American Diabetes Association. Right. That's, that's big time right there. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of things here. You mentioned that on your healthy uh, foods list, you, you did include healthy fats. Now, in the plant-based community, when you're talking about oils, I mean, that is a hot topic. I mean, you, a lot of people want to take those oils and light them right on fire and say, no, no, not in this kitchen. Um, nonetheless, you, you definitely had vegetable oil in your yes column. What 
data did you see that made you comfortable including that in the this is okay field? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Vegetable oils are a much better choice uh, than all the animal fats, such as butter or lard, let's say. Uh, so that led uh, to um, that that led the expert panel uh, to the conclusion that it's it's really good to emphasize that the vegetable oils, and I need to say, non-hydrogenated and non-tropical oils. So that excludes palm oil and it, it excludes uh, coconut oil. So uh, a good a good examples of the fats um, that that are recommended here are, for example, olive oil or, or rapeseed oil. Uh, and when we're talking about how much of these, uh, should we consume oils at all? Should we rely on nuts and seeds for the, uh, for the little fat that we need? That's an excellent question. And that regards the quantity. Uh, but the source is the plant foods that contain these healthy fats. So that's number one. Number two, what about the quantity? Will someone with diabetes benefit from minimizing the oils as well? And the answer is absolutely yes. They will improve their insulin sensitivity and uh, it'll, their diabetes will improve much faster. They will also start losing weight more rapidly, which um, is one of the components that people with diabetes need help with. Um, so minimizing the oils is definitely good um, but in the first step we need to know uh, that plant sources of fat are, are much better uh, than animal sources all right so let's kind of put a bow on that by saying vegetable oils are a better option if you already have diabetes, if you're looking to lose weight, the best option, however, may be to really then really restrict the amount that you're eating or potentially even go that super hardcore route and cut them out altogether. Is, is that kind of what we're concluding here? That's exactly right. Um, and just for those who um, are unfamiliar, we, we talked about plant oils and you even said, well, look, like get the tropical oils out. They're not really included in this conversation. What are some other unhealthy oils that definitely raise that red flag for you? Uh, yeah, the, the oils that are high in saturated fat include the tropical oils, such as coconut oil and palm oil. So they're out. Unfortunately, these are... Uh, the the cheap fats that that are being used in in the industry. So when you look at packaged foods, when you look at the snacks, uh, many of them are just loaded with palm oil and coconut oil. So be aware of these and um, cut them out from your diet. They're not good for you. Uh, number two is also trans fats. Uh, those are also uh, super cheap fats. Uh, that are sometimes used for uh, for the snacks and for the processed foods. Um, their use has been limited, um, but they still have not been completely eliminated. So um, the tropical oils and the trans fats are the two kinds of fats that you really need to cut out from your diet completely. 
All right. Now let's bounce and talk about publication bias. This is something as a journalist that fascinates me. How did you weight what the publication bias would be? So um, say that something was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Did that automatically carry more credibility with you all than say something that was, and this is a fictitious one, the International Journal of Plants? right? Because you know that there's that inherent bias there. How did you guys weight that? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Chuck. Uh, just, to, just to give you an idea, uh, the grade system has a manual that's, you know, like a few hundred pages long, and it gives you all the detail how to assess uh, everything. And it's also done uh, by a few people independently. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, a publication bias doesn't only refer to in which journal the, the study has been published, um, but also uh, when, when a research group discovers something um, that sounds like it will be published and it will, it will get some traction, uh, those findings are more likely to be published by the authors than, let's say, like a neutral finding. Let's say your hypothesis is that uh, rapeseed oil is excellent for diabetes. And you do a study and you find out uh, that it was not so great as you expected. And in fact, um, you know, the opposite is true, let's say. Some research groups may completely, um, you know, put these findings aside and not publish them at all. So that's, that's the publication bias. Like what uh, sounds trendy is more likely to be published than findings that kind of uh, doesn't sound that trendy at that moment to the the particular research group. Did anybody say, well, now, wait a minute, though, Dr. Kaliova, I know that you love talking about a plant-based diet. I know that you work for the Physicians Committee, which is very much all about preventative nutrition and eating a plant-based diet. Did anybody ever try to poke holes in your credibility throughout this process? That's an excellent question, too, Chuck. In fact, I haven't been included only uh, in the work on plant-based diets but also on other dietary patterns. We assessed, uh, for example, the keto diets. We found out that, that keto diets are not good to be recommended to people with diabetes. So we discourage people from ketogenic diets in, in, this, in this official paper. Uh, we assessed also other kinds of dietary patterns, such as the Mediterranean diet or the Nordic diet, the DASH diet. Uh, and I've been personally included in the process of assessing all of these dietary patterns. And how do you like check your own personal bias? Because clearly, you know, you have arrived at a conclusion uh, that you believe is true to yourself. How do you like prevent your own personal bias from entering, you know, Dr. Kaliova work mode when you're assessing all of this data? That's an ex excellent question. And uh, each uh, each person, each member of the expert panel has their own personal bias. Uh, it's inevitable. Uh, but we also have a, 
a strict process by which uh, we need to abide and to which we adhere. Uh, and we just go step by step by assessing the evidence. And the fact that we work together as a team and let's say someone who whose personal diet is a Nordic diet works with someone else who follows a Mediterranean diet and they also work together with someone who's vegan, that makes the team much stronger and much more independent and the outcome is much more unbiased. Have you ever gone into th something with, again, like your own personal bias? And, and clearly, as a professional, you're able to check that at the door. But your own personal bias perhaps gave you uh, your own personal hypothesis going into something. But then when you saw research that was published that was counter to what your original hypothesis was, you then were able to still accept that research and those findings because they had been so locked down. Because clearly you have already uh, or also established a system for uh, being able to quantify uh, or rate how solid these findings could be. So have you ever been able to be swayed based off of some findings that you have also come across? Yeah, that's an important point. And I mean, again, having like a clear um, guidance and a clear process, how to grade the evidence is, is the key. Um, this being done by independent uh, members of the group is, is the key also. Uh, one example of um, you know one piece uh, where I'm a little bit like disappointed in the in the recommendations. We do recommend legumes, you know, your lentils and beans and and peas, uh, as as a healthy healthy group uh, or healthy foods that you should consume. Uh, but the evidence is graded as low, and uh, because there. The, the, the beneficial effects of legumes have been assessed mainly by the observational data, not so much by the randomized clinical trials. Uh, so this is personally a bit disappointing to me uh, because I know from experience how legumes are super beneficial for people with diabetes. But at the same time, it reflects where we are, where the evidence is it shows that we need more randomized clinical trials. Um, you know, we're not done. And this is, this is the two, uh, 2023 uh, dietary recommendation update, and we're not done. We need to continue the research to provide even stronger evidence for foods such as legumes. I guess my final question to you is because you feel passionately about the legumes. If you were to design your own study specifically about this to try to get answers to the questions that are still outstanding there or just to shore up the quality of data, how would you, Dr. Kaliova, start to arrange this study? How would you organize it and lay it out? Yeah, an excellent study, uh, like when we're talking about legumes, your beans and lentils and peas. Uh, an excellent study would be a randomized clinical trial where we would bring in people with type 2 diabetes and uh, we would give them uh, specific foods and ideally in a way where they wouldn't know uh, what they're consuming. So in some studies, in some nutritional studies, um, 
the research groups made different products such as for example muffins or you know different kinds of products where they hid all the ingredients that needed to be there with legumes it's a bit more difficult but ideally um, you know people would consume uh, different amounts of legumes and we would look at their glycemic control uh, and other markers of cardiometabolic health, their body weight, their blood pressure, uh, their A1C as a marker of glycemic control, their blood lipids. Uh, and so we would comprehensively uh, assess the effects of different uh, amounts of legumes that people consume over the course of, let's say, at least 12 weeks and, uh, you know, assess the effect on their diabetes and other cardiometabolic outcomes. There it is. See, I look forward to you putting a study to, I'm not, I'm, I mean, let me just throw this out there into the universe and see if we can't get it to manifest from the exam roomies. I would love for you to be front and center on a study like that. You design it, we'll implement it, we'll crowdfund it through the exam roomies and let's just get some beans on everybody's radar because my goodness gracious, I just think that that would be fantastic. Let's shore up that data and make sure that the next time that we do these rounds of uh, dietary recommendation updates, we, we, I mean, we really, I mean, we want that, that data rated as heavily as, as possible. We want that to have all the credibility in the world. And clearly, you know what you're doing when it comes to studies, because you have done so many of them that uh, the results on are just beyond reproach. They're so, so, so well done. So let's do those with beans and diabetes. What do you say, Dr. Kaliova? It's great to meet Chuck. All right. All right. And by the way, that's a uh, Hannah Kaliova, MD and PhD. So we're going to call Dr. Kaliova the double doc moving forward, <laughs> because I mean, you, you're just literally one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. And I so adore it every time you're on the show. It's so much fun for me because I always feel like we learn so much. You take this so seriously and you love what you do and it shows and it is just a true joy to talk to you. So thanks for making the time today. Thanks so much. Chuck. Dr. Kaliova just never disappoints. I'm telling you, she is literally one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. So, so, so smart. So thank you so much, Dr. K, for being here with us today. And Here's the cool thing. She's coming right back. We already have another episode, another interview that we recorded where she and I are going to be talking about the three big lessons that she learned while in Japan that we can apply to our own health. The trends that we're seeing there and how we can use them to make sure that we are maximizing our own health throughout the world. So stay tuned for that. That will be coming up very, very soon. But specific to today... I wanted to share this with you as well, some more research that's coming out, or as a matter of fact, emerging research that's in the middle of being done that could have big ramifications for how we approach diabetes moving forward, but not just with adults, because it is very much a fact that diabetes is not just an adult problem. It is now a massive problem for kids and one that is getting worse by the day. We used to call type 2 diabetes adult onset diabetes, and that is no longer the case anymore. And researchers in New York want to know why. Why has the rate of children with diabetes under the age of 20 nearly doubled 
If you look at the statistics between the years 2001 and 2017, you will see a literal explosion in the number of cases. And the only thing that is truly understood right now is that along with that explosion of diabetes cases is also an increased rate of childhood obesity. But that can't possibly be everything, can it? So the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, which is part of the National Institutes of Health, they are going to take a look at this. So they have awarded the Children's Hospital at Montefiore and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York a six-year, $4.1 million grant to identify what they call the biological and social factors that cause children and adolescents to develop diabetes. So six years, $4.1 million, that can go a long way. So the study is going to feature 3,000 children from a variety of racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. They're going to pick these kids from 15 different sites across the country. So you get a really large sample size here. And they're going to meet with these kids once a year for four years. They're going to check their blood sugar levels and monitor their overall health. And from that, they'll look at all the data that's collected and try to determine the factors that spur prediabetes into becoming full-blown type 2 diabetes in adolescents as they go through puberty. Which, by the way, experts say puberty can be a particularly challenging time for regulating blood sugar. I did not know that until I read that in this press release. So the researchers here are hoping to create what they call evidence-based guidelines for pediatricians so that the kids who are at the greatest risk can receive the medical and social support they need to prevent them from developing the disease. So this study is definitely something to keep an eye on. So while that's going to be going on in New York, we're also going to be up there, too, for our big live and in-person show. We talked a little bit about this at the top. And again, Rip Esselstyn from Plant Strong. He's going to be joining us that night along with Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Rob Osfeld and at least one more special guest still to come as we present the most heart-healthy night of your life. And oh, by the way, it's going to be a lot of fun too. So pcrm.org slash events or click the link in the episode notes to secure your tickets today. Limited seats remain. pcrm.org slash events or click that link in the episode notes we sold out la we had a fantastic time and i cannot wait to do this again up in new york on july 12th with rip esselstyn dr neil barnard and dr rob osfeld one more still to come pcrm.org events or click that link in the episode notes to join us live and in person for the exam room live that's a lot of lives hopefully we're going to save a lot of lives too that'd be amazing that's what i love about this show it's like we do have a ton of fun, but we get this life-saving and life-changing information out there. Love that. Love this. It's the coolest. Also the coolest, 
Dr. Will Bolsowitz, Dr. B, the Gut Health MD. He's going to be on the next episode of the show. He's going to be joining us on Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook for the next episode of The Exam Room Live. And if there's a question you would like to ask Dr. B, you can send it to me ahead of time. All gut health questions are welcome. Send it to me on Twitter or Instagram at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And of course, you can always catch the replay of the podcast right back here, first thing on Thursday. Also, Dr. Neil Barnard coming back on the show next week. But before he gets here, don't forget his two big music shows with Carbon Works just released this brand new album. We just premiered the single not too terribly long ago here on the show. He's got two big shows. Number one, actually also up in New York, May 9th at the Robin Williams Center. And then May 11th at the AFI Silver Spring in Silver Spring, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. Tickets and full information for both events can be found at pcrm.org slash events. Or once again, just click that link in the episode notes. And one more favor to ask, if you haven't already done so, please... Give the show a follow and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your shows so that we can continue to raise the health IQs of millions of people around the world. Literally every new follow, every five-star rating helps us climb a little bit higher in the podcast rankings and makes it easier. Most importantly, it makes it easier for somebody in need right now to hear this information, to find it, put it into practice, and change their life, improve their health, maybe even save their life. The follow, the five-star rating, it goes a long way to doing just that. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Hanna Kaliova for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.